There's the cutter. There it is. Yeah, this is our multi-height sickle mower. Um, and this was a crop that we were working with out in Montana uh, with IND hemp out there. Wow, that's quite a rig. So that would be for fiber or for grain or? This one's, this one's fiber specific. So the idea of chopping it into the different sections is why? Okay, uh, excellent question. IHEMP Michigan is a member-based organization backing hemp farmers, seed cultivators, processors, manufacturers, and hemp businesses statewide. Our members are engaged in defining the path to success of industrial hemp from seed to sale and beyond. We are committed to empowering hemp farmers, fueling industry leaders, and educating consumers to ensure hemp flourishes in the Midwest. Our focus is influencing responsible and fair regulation, providing grower education, and enabling full access to the evolving marketplace. IHEMP Michigan advocates for wellness in people and the planet through hemp, and it begins with the farmer. Now, on to our show. Well, I'm excited to introduce Andrew Bish from Bish Enterprises. If you know, for those of us that go around to these trade shows, you know, Andrew seems to always be there, Bish Enterprises, and when and, and he solves one of those problems when, when we were first going through this process. Yeah, I was totally new to industrial hemp, and uh, we were trying to figure out all the steps and the stages as we go to cultivate this great crop. And the harvesting, of course, is at the end game. And it's like a lot of people were really struggling trying to figure that out. It looks like you have some interesting equipment to talk about, Andrew. So, and uh, then we has a, we also have uh, Karen, uh, who's uh, in sales with Bish, Bish Enterprises. So welcome, welcome, welcome from Nebraska. Yeah, thank you guys for having us here today. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you three. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So, Andrew, this is a business that was started by your grandfather in 1976. Is that correct? Yeah, the core business, Bish Enterprises, uh, was founded in 1976. And my grandfather did back then a lot of the same things that we're doing today. Obviously, some technological advances and things like that. But uh, we, we still carry on uh, and, and serve customers with some of those same products. And, you know, so you're doing a little uh, design work. Are, are you an engineer yourself? Do you do some of the design? No. Well, I'm, I'm not uh, an engineer by trade or by schooling. Uh, what, what I do is work with a very talented group of people and uh, work to help them understand some of the concepts uh, from harvesting. There's a lot of nuance when it comes to harvest, uh, whether it be a grain crop, fiber crop, you know, corn, soybeans, sunflowers, whatever that is. And and I've, I've spent a lot of my life um, understanding how those crops grow and and how to how to work with them. And I work with my engineers to help develop equipment that solves some unique needs. Okay. So, uh, what would you say is your biggest success so far? You know, as far as uh, when it comes to hemp. In the hemp industry, uh, you know, as far as product product development. Oh, great question. I, I think our one of our largest successes in hemp actually was uh, the product that we sold the most of in 2019, where we had worked with a company out of South Carolina to redesign a, a tobacco harvester. Uh, you know, there. 2019 was a year in which that uh, we saw a lot of people have those needs um, uh, for equipment and delivered on that. Uh, however, from a, a long lasting impact, I don't think that, that product is, was quite, quite what it needed to be uh, as we move forward because it is fairly limited. Uh, so if we move on to what I think is some of our unique products uh, that solve go forward challenges, it would be our super crop header. Uh, that we've designed for grain harvesting, as well as our new fiber cut uh, unit that we can basically cut down multiple, uh, well, we can cut down stocks uh, all in uniform size, uh, going through a field at about 15 feet wide of cutting. Now that's your, that's, that's the three bar cutter? Yeah, we've got, currently our unit is four bars, uh, but we can make it three bars, two bars. We've also got a, a a single bar system that we harvested a few hundred acres with this year. 
I think, Dave, you showed me before we started, you had some images or a video of that or something? Yeah, this is on your, I don't know if you have a better page for some of your videos, but um, where we could walk through one of one at a time, but this is transplanting, some monitoring. And how does a drone fit in? Is that just to view the crops or what? So that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the Hemp Harvest Works company, um, I founded in, in, well, this was uh, 2017. And that company was specifically to solve some of the needs of today's hemp producers. So Hemp Harvest Works doesn't produce any equipment itself. It's mainly a retailer of some of the best equipment that we found out there. Uh, I, I wanted to bring together uh, really any type of equipment that farmers could use that was viable for their operation. Uh, to give people the option of looking at more than one item from a manufacturer. So we're pretty agnostic in terms of what we deliver to customers outside of making sure that we're delivering something that works for them. And by having all these different manufacturers uh, at our fingertips, uh, we can help really uh, decide the best product for the customer based on what their circumstances are. So this is different. The super crop is different than I've seen before. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, that that unit's been running for multiple years. Uh, actually, harvests uh, one of the nation's largest resellers of CBD products uh, right there, and, and I think that they're out there this week using that. But uh, that that design, um, what we came up with that for was to essentially resolve some of the stock processing um, that was happening. Uh, we designed this header to leave about 33% of the stock material in the field, and then we're chopping up most of the flour. Works very, very good in wet conditions. Uh, for anybody that's worked with CBD for very long, once you get into dry conditions, uh, you start to have high rates of loss um, because of wind um, and, and just loose cannabinoid material, but works fantastic in, in wet conditions. So does that material then after you chop that, that's obviously wet or green at this point, does that have to be further dried then before they can extract the CBD out of it? Yeah, their process requires uh, drying their product before they can do uh, CBD extraction. So from there, that, that gets transported to a facility that's just a few miles away and goes right into the drying system. Uh, we've worked with them. Also, uh, when it comes out of the dryer, there's a little bit of separation that occurs to remove uh, a few more of the sticks, and then that goes right into uh, extraction. Okay. So here's a unique problem we have here. Maybe one of the members will ask you about it. So there is some farms over here that have planted the um, CBD plants like grain. So very uh, high numbers in the field, and it grows tall. Uh, rather than the bush kind of thing. So we're trying to figure out, they're going to go through and harvest it with a, um, um, with a, like a rice header kind of thing. Okay. Go both ways through the field. And they're going to leave the stalks in the field. And we're trying to figure out the best way to harvest those stalks out of that field. Um, so your cutter bars have always been interesting on there. And you've got a single, you said you got a single one as well. Yeah. That's yeah. We've got uh, several hundred acres this year. It's 12 feet wide, hydraulic driven, really simple machine. Just put it behind a tractor and run through the field, you know, around nine mile an hour. And you'll get a lot of work done. Um, and then now, if you if you work with this, I'm assuming that, um, then how do you pick up the stalks after that? Then do you rake them and then bale them? Is that how they would handle that? Or So that's, that's a great question. I, I would... Not not understanding exactly what you're going to utilize the stocks for, I would want to dig into that process a little bit. But mm -hmm. um, if if you, for instance, at some point, if these are going to get chopped up, what I what I might recommend is actually uh, just running through the field with a what they call a pickup header uh, on the front of a forage harvester and directly chopping it up. Uh, because that'd be that'd be the quickest avenue. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you if 
again, not not understanding what's going to happen next, there could be an option of going through and windrowing and bailing. Uh, it is a little bit com- more complicated to windrow uh, bush plants. So that that is a, a challenge from a, a raking perspective that you may come across. Um, but if they were small enough, uh, they could be raked and then you could potentially get them into a bale. But uh, again, going into a baler, depending on the size of that bush, you could have some general complications in, in that in that way. Yeah, these are these aren't so much bush as they are tall and slender. They almost oh. look like fiber. Yeah, that's great then. Um, those those ones can be windrowed typically um, and bailed, or like I said, you could go through with a pickup header and chop it up. Uh, really, like I try to help people understand knowing what you're going to do with it next helps me recommend uh, the appropriate piece of equipment because there's a lot of ways to skin that cat, but you know, how are you going to get the effect that you want? Uh, if you're going to have a higher rate of loss with one machine than the other, based on what your output's going to be, uh, then, then that might not be advisable. I know this stuff is not inexpensive, but I know it ranges all over the place, but uh, do you provide any kind of financing or work with folks that do for the farmers that want to buy this equipment? Yeah, absolutely. We, we do have uh, financing options uh, for people. Uh, we, we work with more than one vendor. Uh, we've worked hard at trying to find uh, individuals that are interested in providing loans to hemp producers, and, and we do have some options there. There are some hills to, to climb with, with you know, first-year businesses sometimes, um, depending on, you know, collateral and, and things like that. Uh, so there are some regular limitations, but yeah, we've, we've got avenues that we can work with people on. Well, Karen, tell us a little bit about you. How did you get involved with this, uh, this crazy whole world of hemp stuff? Well, I, I mean, I've lived in Nebraska my whole life, so I've been around agriculture for a really long time. Um, and I had a friend who was in sales and had mentioned doing agriculture sales and, so I looked into it and, and Bish Enterprises was kind of really close to my town, which is about 20 minutes away, 30-ish minutes away. Um, so I applied and then I came here and it and it turned out that they're also doing that the hemp harvest works. And um, and then on my first day, they asked me to go to the Southern Hemp Expo with them. And I'd never been out of Nebraska before. So I was like, I sure. <laughs> um, and then we, we went and we did the Southern Hemp Expo. I think I met someone from iHemp Michigan there um, asking about Andrew. Yep, Dave, there you go. Asking about Andrew and all that. And um, and I learned a lot at that, at that expo. There's like a lot of industry professionals sharing knowledge. It's, it's really, um, inspiring to see how many people want to see hemp, uh, succeed. Yeah. A lot, lot of, yeah. lot of things to figure out. Yeah. yeah. Well, I got introduced to Andrew and the company quite a couple of years ago when we first started down this road, actually, just as we were forming the I have Michigan thing. And now do you, Andrew, do you still make the grain, um, the grain harvester as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we do a lot of work in grain. We're, we still are heavily involved in traditional row crops, uh, corn, soybeans, uh, sorghum, especially uh, and sunflowers. And this year has actually been a very busy year in, in terms of uh, delivering headers for sorghum, which, which has created some interesting problems from an economic standpoint for hemp. Uh, when you look at the cost of uh, commodities right now, then you look at hemp going into this season, uh, it's not as profitable uh, as, as we wanted to see it. Uh, hemp go- going into last year was very attractive uh, when you looked at commodity prices. But when you see such high commodity prices, we're actually seeing a, a reduction in interest on the hemp side of things just because it's it's hard to you know work those pennies out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we'll see how long the high prices. I hope they stay up for farmers, but uh, that's always that. that. Uh, up and down, you know, cyclical. Well, thing. the unfortunate thing is the cost of inputs has gone up uh, dramatically. So I think we're, we will see some high prices continue. They just unfortunately aren't translating into the oh, bottom line profitability that we'd like to mm-hmm. see for producers. Because that's really how you guys got started was with traditional farm equipment. Dave, can you bring that website back up a little bit? Yeah, actually, I found better stuff on you know just on uh, the bish enterprises for the super crop but where, where, where'd there you we go. i just wanted to show some of this other equipment some of their other agricultural equipment as well but yeah, yeah this is this is the header that actually brought us into the hemp industry 
Um, we designed this for sorghum and sunflowers. And uh, late 2015, we we had a producer, uh, actually a custom harvester, uh, that reached out to us and wanted to try the header on a, a hemp field that he'd been contracted to grow. And uh, we brought out one of our basic headers and uh, learned a few things in the field. And, and I guess that's where I got I got hooked on the hemp industry, realized that, that there weren't a lot of good solutions out there. And, and our business is really founded on trying to solve unique problems for producers. And that's fit right in that bill. Yeah, you see all those moving parts and you think about those hemp stalks getting wrapped around things. You know, I'm sure you've gone through a few trials and errors and along that line, eh? This, uh, you know, any, any issues with the hemp in particular wrapping around causing issues? Andrew? I think we might have lost them. I think they're froze. They're froze. Hello. Andrew, you still with us? All right, now they're moving. Okay. I think. Wonder, uh, I don't know if this. Andrew, you still there? We. I don't see his lips moving, and they aren't moving. So I'm thinking they're Wi-Fi. I don't see his eyes moving. So I don't know. Oh, something's wrong with my audio. Give me just yeah, a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. That's what. That's fun thing about doing a live show. Yes, all sorts of things could happen during live. Hey, Mike, shows. who do you have on next uh, next week for your show? Uh, we're, we're still kind of doing stuff in the caregiver space, uh, and we'll probably. Uh, have some folks on that are participating in our holiday gift guide. You know, we're trying to push that right down. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, oh, okay, good. I, I really don't start working on that show until like Friday because there's so <laughs> many other things that I'm dealing with. Right. You know, so. All right. So Andrew, you're back. We are. I apologize for that. Ah. Oh, no problem. I've got a video here of uh, one of our newest uh, products that we put out this year. Yeah, you can share your screen. Are you, let's see, make sure you're seeing this. Yep, it's coming. There we go. There's the cutter. There it is. Yeah, this is our multi-height sickle mower. Um, and this was a crop that we were working with out in Montana uh, with IND hemp out there. Wow, that's quite a rig. Well, that would be for fiber or for grain or? This one's, this one's fiber specific. So the idea of chopping it into the different sections is why. Okay. Uh, excellent question. It, it, it does aid in raking. And then when you go to bale and then unbale, it, it makes it a lot easier. So if, if you, if you go into, let, let's say that you want to use a traditional round baler, um, a traditional round baler is not going to lend itself to having uh, stocks that are extremely long. It, it just it just does not work very well. What you what you end up having to do then is invest in um, basically like a forage harvester baler, which could run about two hundred fifty thousand dollars that can handle that that volume of material. Or you need to reduce your length of stock uh, so that you can use a traditional baler. So it's it's kind of just trying to help use some additional equipment, uh, some equipment that's already out there in the marketplace that, that people own in in these areas, rather than having to go invest in uh, a large specialty baler. So does it still get um, baled into a round bale, or do you put it in square bales then? Uh, this particular group will do it in a round bale. That's their intention is to do it in a round bale. And and we can adjust our, our size depending on what your needs are. So if your decortication system prefers to take in three foot stocks versus eight foot stocks, you know, we can resolve, you know, we could go three foot, four foot, whatever that cut height is. Um, you know, what we wanted to do this year was really prove out that, that we can build this in the United States and that it works effectively. And we proved that to ourselves. And now, now what we have to do is uh, find some individuals uh, that this uh, harvesting method uh, matches their production. Mm -hmm. 
So um, that so, one, that, so that was, excuse me. So that one would, you could, the farmer could use their existing tractor and just hook it up behind it, right? They wouldn't have to buy the whole thing, right? Exactly. Exactly. And then it makes it a lower cost of entry because that particular machine that you're looking at, a farmer can buy for less than $90,000, um, which, you know, when you can get south of $100,000 for a piece of equipment, uh, mm -hmm. that, that can really, really help. And then when you can harvest it, you know, 14 acres an hour, um, mm -hmm. you can get some really reasonable uh, production rates uh, in, in, in that way. Also, one of the things that we noticed was that the, because of the way that we're cutting the material, it does allow for a faster redding process to occur because all of the material is not bound up into a windrow yet. Um, so there is that advantage or, you know, depending on if you don't want redding, that's a disadvantage maybe, um, but it would aid in drying. It does, it does allow for rap, uh, more rapid drying. Can you show anything that shows how it ends up in a windrow? What can you explain that? I don't know that I have anything to show that. Um, uh, let, 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 let me take a look here. Um, so, Andrew, when, when it gets put in that bale, <clears throat> you still need to let it sit in the field for a period of time before you bale it, or can it be baled right away and will the redding process can, you know, still happen when it's in a bale, or is it too protected? Well, you shouldn't see redding happening in, in a bale uh, because your moisture level should should be declined to the degree where, where redding doesn't occur. Uh, if you have a wet bale, you probably have a fire. Um, a lot of people don't realize that wet bales burn. Uh, they, they just build up heat, they can bust, and then, then you have fire. So you really have to have that material dried all the way down before you go into bale format, um, regardless of what you're doing. And then there, there's depending on your, again your output. Some people are interested in redding. Um, now, if you don't red, that does require uh, either some sort of chemical redding process or mechanical redding um, process to occur after you pull the material out of the field, which can raise some of the costs. Uh, but if you're trying to do high grade clothing fibers, for instance, having material. Um, that is degrading out in the field may limit, uh, well, it might lead to a higher loss percentage than what you'd like to see. Mm -hmm. hmm. Mainly right now, of course, this is my own personal situation, but in Michigan, you know, we're trying to do a lot of the process for um, the bedding material and also for the plastics industry. Um, that's the thing we're, we're working on quite heavily here right now. Yeah, well, and especially with bedding, one thing that you got, uh, the, the redding process is really important there because if, it, if it's not redding properly, you could end up in mold situations, high mold um, scenarios. And from an animal. Yes, bedding, I've seen that happen as well. That's mm -hmm. that's not desirable. And mm -hmm. and ultimately, we need to froze up again with them. You froze up, Blake. So, um, so a lot of equipment, and, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about their company until we get them back. But uh, and, there we go. You're back now. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think you know, over time, as we continue to grow this crop for more years, we're going to get more information on redding. We actually did a study this year where we grew hemp in seven different states. We grew nine different fiber varieties, and. We actually collected some material that we have had redded uh, for 30 days in all of these different locations. And we're going to compare uh, the redding that was done in three different locations in Nebraska versus Iowa versus Minnesota, uh, Texas, um, Oregon, and, and say to ourselves, you know, how, how are these redding in the field in those locations? And then we'll actually decorticate that material and do tensile strength testing uh, to identify uh, what the tensile strength of those different varieties were uh, and how well they decorticated. Uh, so we just, we need a lot more data to know some more things and, and we're working heavily on trying to uncover some of that data. And after we get this information gathered, uh, we'll absolutely be distributing it to farmers all over the country just so that they can see what we learned this year. Have you done anything in Michigan yet? We haven't. Um, I, I, know some great people in Michigan. Uh, uh, this year, we, we weren't able to put anything together directly uh, with Michigan. We do have, we did work with the University of Illinois and uh, their test plot there in Champaign, but haven't quite made it to, to Michigan from a test plot standpoint. 
So that would be somewhat comparable. I mean, that's not very far away from Michigan, what, 100 miles or something, you know? So mm-hmm. you're, you're assuming then what works there will probably work here, but don't know? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors that are going to play into that, but the the where you are from a north-south standpoint, uh, we should see very similar effect with a lot of those varieties. But one thing I will tell you is in Nebraska, um, we grew all of our crops. Um, you know, we, we, we went from the western part of the state to the eastern part of the state, all through basically the south center area. And we had dramatic results um, in differences, not not because of the amount of daylight, actually, uh, but this year we experienced uh, the amount of rain um, impacted them in ways that, that we weren't able to forecast uh, prior. So um, there, there's still a lot to learn, I, I, I'd say, but uh, for the most part, the genetics that are working in Illinois will continue to work in Michigan, um, you know, sand some of those other climate issues. Yeah, James D. Decker and Phil Abetti, um, if I said his last name from Illinois, they're going to be at the expo. We'll give a lot of good updates on varieties and trials and help everybody out pick out those good ones, that's for sure. So, yeah. So, is there any? So, let's talk about decortication for a little bit. Are there any really great mm, machines or processes out there that are really working efficiently and, and good at this point, or are we still a ways yet on getting that worked out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are some systems uh, that, that that work pretty well. Um, if you look at the Formation Ag Fiber Track 660, it's it's pretty consistent um, once you've got it set on a particular variety. I think that, again, one of the challenges is what is the market desiring? So uh, let, let's just take a look at 660, for instance. It's good at delivering a longer line fiber, and it delivers herd. Um, and you can clean and size it, uh, and you can get some really clean fiber. Um, however, if you are in the market just for herd, uh, you're, you're probably going through a process that's less efficient than if we used a, uh, a system that was more of a hammer mill system. Um, and if you're going just for fiber, um, I think the system works absolutely fantastic for that. So even though there are good systems out there, it really needs paired to what your commodity is, or you're kind of going to be running running uphill. Mm-hmm. I've seen cool. the, I've also seen the LaRoche system out at IND Hemp. Um, you know, I've seen systems all over the country. The the biggest challenge we've led up to this year is the market just wasn't open uh, quite in the way that it's starting to open up right now. Um, and then there's, there's a real feedstock issue that people aren't aware of that if, if we were to turn on multiple decortication facilities in the United States, you would see bales disappear pretty well immediately, um, with no way to replace them. And nobody even is aware of what the quality of the bales that are sitting out there, um, you know, how they decorticate and what the output of that looks like. I've seen some from Indiana that we tried last year where there were square bales, um, Nice bales, but they had a bunch of rocks in them. So you had to be very careful when you put it through the machines to make that work. So, yeah, and we we ran into some problems decorticating this year with the the Jinma crop. Actually, um, you know, something that we didn't anticipate was the size of the leaf in Jinma. And interestingly enough, it uh, because of the size of its leaf, it actually the leaf has a similar weight weight to uh, a medium-sized herd, and so when you're doing air air separation, you actually end up with with quite a little dilemma there. Um, okay. Not something we ever thought <clears> of. <throat> mm-hmm. So, if fiber is a little bit dirty, I'm going to call it, um, has some still of the herd in it and stuff like that. Is there a market for that kind of material, or does it really need to be clean fiber? Can they use it in, in insulation or other other uses? Do you know? Yeah. Uh, first off, there's ways to clean it up further, um, but there, I would say that the market's really broad right now. Uh, there's that there's people that that are looking for fiber material that also uh, their their product can have herd material in it, and that customer would be the customer I'd line up with that that type of commodity. Um, and then there's people that it just 
you can't have any herd in it to, for the fiber to work, uh, more textile grade items. But yeah, there's, there's all sorts of markets um, that we're seeing right now. Uh, the question is really going to be how big are each one of those um, and, and what's going to drive some of the more, you know, consistent commodities that are, that are coming out of this, this crop. You know, you made, you made a good point with this. Uh, people don't understand the, the dilemma with the supply side of this. I do with doing what I'm doing, making the, the bedding and stuff, but because that's my problem. I can't get enough material to feed all the, all the uh, orders that we have right now. Um, so that's really a, that is a very big dilemma right now. Of, so we, we need to, we're at that point where we got the chicken and the egg kind of thing, right? <clears throat> now we got industry playing along and, so now if, if we're going to be able to supply them with that, now we need industry to come up and say, yeah, we need this amount so we can plan that for next year. You know, right now, if anybody come up to you and said, well, I'd like to get 20,000 pounds of this, I could say, well, you know, next year we can probably supply that to you. But yep. so that's kind of where we're at, part of where we're at. Yeah. So, so Karen, uh, let's talk about the youth and farming. You know, you're, you're out there selling uh, farmers. Do you see, you know, you're, Gender, you know, you being a woman in, you know, probably a more male dominated role and, you know, being so young, you know, compared to us old guys, except for Well, with, with traditional agriculture, you don't. Watch that, Dave. Lot. I'm not that old yet. <laughs> uh huh. Um, but, but yeah, with traditional agriculture, I don't, I don't feel like you see a lot of um, younger people or, or even women. Um, uh, you'll mostly see like families that have been doing it for generations. And if there's like a younger person, it's because their family's already involved in farming. I think with hemp farmers though, um, it sparks an interest in farming for the younger generation. Um, the, the hemp farmer crowd is a lot more diverse than the traditional farmer crowd, I think. So uh, I like, I did meet a couple of like younger people who were trying to source for from farms and figure out, the testing process for soil and, and all that stuff, right? Because to them, it, it is a um, a high priced commodity. So they figure they can make a lot of profit. Um, I feel like that was kind of the downfall at the beginning of um, the growing hemp though, is everybody thought like, oh, this is gonna be a high priced commodity. I'm gonna be able to sell it to whoever and it'll be a great time, you know? But um, with, with the hemp uh, industry settling down a little bit, I think we're seeing more of um, serious farmers and people who are here to stay for the long run, I suppose. And are you seeing more farmers willing to experiment growing hemp now? I mean, it's still pretty new. Farm bill was what, 2018 or something. Uh, So, I mean, it's still relatively brand new. I mean, they're used to growing grains and soybeans and corn and all that, but hemp's a whole different breed of cat, right? Yeah, for sure. I think that um, like I, uh, Personally, I've been receiving more calls for um, hemp farmers uh, that are locally um, sourced. Um, in Nebraska, it is kind of hard to convince uh, people who have, who have believed their whole lives that this is uh, a bad plant and that it, it shouldn't be grown and, and it's bad for the community to convince them that this is actually the future and this is actually the way your farm is going to keep making money um for the years to come and all of that stuff so yeah i feel like there is slowly getting that curve of um of finally accepting the things uh, that are happening in the hemp industry it's the old loco weed from the westerns right you know yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> reefer madness still going on yeah, still. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that, that one of the challenge with nebraska farmers is that well, Nebraska is a very conservative state in general, and because we don't have uh, much for offload opportunities, Nebraska farmers are very resistant to it. Uh, but I can tell you that um, it is, as soon as there's a market where you can make one penny more than corn, there's not a farmer in Nebraska that cares what the crop is. <laughs> Follow the Benjamins. Yep. So, Andrew, you, you get a perspective, and, and Karen, maybe you do too when you're talking to people. So what are you seeing are the biggest challenges from your side, what you're hearing about moving forward with the crop? What, what, are, we, what are some of the things we got to overcome to, to make this a, a, a good commodity for everybody? Well, um, personally, I've been seeing um, a lot of people that 
basically don't have a machine for what they need. They they need someone to build what they're thinking of. For example, one farmer at the Southern Hemp Expo, he was trying to make hemp cigarettes and every machine he found was grinding them too finely. They get that really fine grind when you're doing hemp or CBD or smokable flour, right? Um, and his problem was that he needed a chunkier grind and there just wasn't a machine out there for him that was doing that. Um, and there was getting uh, stems caught in the paper, was ripping the paper. And so he had that whole issue. Um, so I think I've just been mostly seeing like a lot of farmers with issues that don't have solutions yet. Yeah. We're sorting it out. Personally, personally, I think a lot of it has to do with some of the economics, uh, you know, we're, we're currently in a buyer seller relationship versus having uh, a market price uh, that people can depend on. Mm. And that that would really help the industry move forward uh, quite a bit if people can depend on uh, certain price points when they're negotiating or creating a farm plan. Um, it, that That's going to solve a lot of problems. But the, the reality is people like yourselves that are making um you know, some people have said, oh, it's just a Frisbee. But I'll tell you what, I see that Frisbee everywhere. Uh, and, and the Frisbee is an indicator of something else, uh, because I know you didn't get into the business just so you could make Frisbees. Um, and as, as companies like yours continue to evolve and develop new products, that's going to pull the marketplace along with it. Uh, and and that's, that's really, the I, I think, the biggest inhibitor right now um, from all those other things that, that we talked about. Because, again, as, as you see people pull on the marketplace, there's going to be specific need that they want. And that need's going to start to trace back to, okay, what's the best crop to get there? And then we're going to start seeing more standard genetics uh, occurring that are easier to predict and build equipment for and that that reduces the cost overall to the producer so uh, i think we just need more more market pull um to help resolve a lot of these problems Uh, and the the infrastructure is not in place either because it's such a new industry like I, i certainly in michigan i can't speak to the other states i mean i've been on this show for over a year and i've been hearing these guys talk about the need to have the infrastructure there that we just don't have. And the other thing, of course, I'm the only non-farmer in the group here, uh, is farmers traditionally don't grow something unless they have a contract at the other end during harvest, right? And so that's a big bugaboo is a lot of them are just experimentally growing hemp. They really don't have anybody to buy it at the end, and then they get burned, and you know this that, that then produces some big issues there, right? Yeah, that is, that's been a historic problem. I, I think it's less of a problem with the grain and fiber producers um, than than the CBD producers of the past, but it, it's still problematic because we we do have people sitting on bales that they don't have a marketplace for, and we don't know if their bales uh, are going to be the quality that we want. Yeah, it, it might not necessarily age well. What what about dual crops, Andrew? Are you seeing that happening? So we've worked with dual crop producers for a long time, um, even before hemp. And I think that there's a lot of viability there. It seems to be kind of niche um, in very select areas of the country. I don't see that happening um, widespread at this point. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of viability with with planting two different crops uh, simultaneously. We've seen success with wheat and soybeans. Um, I think that there are crops that complement hemp, um, but we're, we're just not seeing that uh, on a mass scale at this juncture. Andrew, you serve on the on the um, Hemp Feed Coalition board as well, right? That's correct. Yeah. So where do you see where we're at on that situation right now? Because that's going to change when we can finally use this as livestock feed. Um, that's going to change a lot. So where do you see us going with that? Yeah, great question. And I'm glad you brought that up because uh, uh, there's a a large section of of people, and I would say most people aren't under the, aren't even aware that that the largest commodity that we've got sitting there with hemp, we can't utilize effectively, which is the grain and which is feeding it to the animals and also feeding some of the leaves. Uh Oh, Uh -oh. you'll come back. (laughs) Uh Oh. Well, well, I'll talk a little. Earlier. I'll talk a little bit about it until he comes back. But so yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of research going on right now. Um, we know that poultry is probably at least from what I can tell is probably going to be the first crop 
that we'll be able to use it on for the animals. So yep. yeah, he's back. I'm back. Um, the, the reality is uh, we're not moving fast enough. It, it, the, the hemp feed coalition submitted an application earlier this year and uh, just, just over a month, well, it's been about two months ago. Um, we received a response back from the FDA with quite a laundry list of questions, and some of their concerns are still heavily focused on cannabinoids, hmm. which is very, very discouraging. Um, and so, I'd like to say that things are going well, that the but but they're not. Um, we're we're fighting a very tough battle. Uh, the Hemp Feed Coalition is going to continue to uh, work with the FDA and get their response back here in the next thirty days. Uh, and how we intend to move forward and and ultimately continue down this road of trying to get animals uh, hemp seed certified as an animal feed ingredient. But the FDA, I can tell you, is not a friend to this industry in regards to feeding it to animals. Um, that is that is not something that they've been shown. And it is really restricting the market because the reality is when you come to fiber processing, um, we can lower the cost of fiber production quite dramatically if we can feed animals the grain or, um, you know, the tops of the plants or, or things like that. And not only that, the, the United States, it's an anti-competitive move uh, for the United States to do to itself when you're looking at places in Europe that right now you can do that. Um, it, it, it just... The United States is not going to develop its hemp market appropriately without feeding animals hemp. Yeah. You know, what I don't understand is, I mean, we talk about agencies and how, how they are, but I mean, we've got evidence from other countries that are doing this and, you know, it's not affecting their animals. Um, so how do we get their attention? How I mean, there are people, right, that are running these things. Um, what what do you think we need to do as far as an industry and as far as growers to be able to get their attention to make this move quicker? Is there anything we can do? Yeah, I think we need consolidated voices in the industry. I think that the hemp industry uh, has unfortunately done itself no favors by having 13,000 right. associations. They'll come back. I know we will. <laughs> am, I, am I back again? Yeah, you're back again. There you go. I apologize. We've got really good internet here, so I'm not sure what's going on. But I, I don't think the hemp industry has done itself any favors by having 13,000 associations. Um, we don't have a consolidated voice as an industry, and it's that lack of consolidated voice that has made it hard for the administrations uh, to really decide how to help the industry itself. So I think the hemp industry is in its own way currently. And until we consolidate these organizations into a singular voice, we're going to continue to run into these same challenges when it comes to administration or lawmakers. They just don't know what to do. Let me ask you, uh, have you noticed any difference? The Republicans were in control for four years in Washington, now the Democrats. Any difference or is that pretty much the same? It was actually easier in the prior, prior administration than what we've seen in this administration, which doesn't stand to reason uh, based on what we typically see from a democratic philosophy, but the, the prior administration uh, was much easier to work with. Hmm. Now, I wouldn't say that they were easy. They were just easy. <laughs> easier. It's a relative, relative kind of thing, term. Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, speaking of easy, you know, you're going to want to stick around. One of the things we always do at the end of the show is we share a recipe with hemp because it's, you know, although we can't always, you know, sell all these things easily online, we sure can make some really cool stuff with some hemp heart, hemp hearts. And Blaine, did you bring your hat? I did. Okay. Are we doing the? Uh, this is not really the hamperer if you're not wearing the hat. Protein <laughs> pumpkin pancakes this week. We are absolutely. Okay. We are. I get it queued up, but uh. Karen, uh, Andrew, really appreciate you guys uh, joining us today. Is there anything topic we didn't cover that, you know, we need to, you know, anything else you, know, you need to share? Um, I just wanted to touch on the hempening a little bit. Um, it'll probably be happening April 16th and April 17th in Grand Island, Nebraska. It's just a community education event about hemp and um, Delta 8, the different cannabinoids, Delta 10, all that fun stuff. And where would they find out about that? Are you on social media? Or? Yes, we have a Facebook page. It's called the Justice Coalition of Grand Island. The Justice Coalition of Grand Island. Yes. 
Okay. What'd you call Delta Eight has been heavily regulated and and outright banned in many states. And here in Michigan, in October 11th, it got moved into the marijuana regulatory agency's purview, and you can only buy those products through adult use uh, provisioning centers in Michigan. Whereas other states just outright banned it. You know, so. Mm. Yeah, I heard Colorado had banned it. Um, Nebraska, uh, luckily we haven't had, um, a big chokehold on it yet. Um, the DEA has investigated it, at least the local one. So for Grand Island, um, because when our local vape shop started selling Delta eight, uh, marijuana, smokable flour and all that stuff, um, they definitely investigated that. So mm. nothing yet. <laughs> Thank God. To be fair, Nebraska doesn't know what when when the, when we're talking about deltas in nebraska it's definitely covid related because we oh, yeah. <laughs> we're still not up on cannabinoid science here we're yeah, well again we thank both of you for taking time out of your schedules and and being part of sharing your information with us and we certainly look forward to seeing you at many other events um uh, we hope you'll come maybe play in Michigan or uh, do something there. We'd love to have you come and be part of that. And uh, remember, Andrew, that any of the machines that you've uh, developed, including the uh, the cutter there, we do have an, the Hempy Awards. You can enter that in under innovations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I will do that. And uh, I always love co- going north in January. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, of course. We promise. We promise you. 68 degrees. 70. Indoors. <laughs> <laughs> all inside yeah, but and you have a captive uh, audience you can hammer close clients all day you know? yep. well and then and the beauty is the hotel is connected to the conference center with one of those uh, uh skywalks so you don't actually have to get outside and freeze your butt off you a know? heated skywalk yes yes a heated skywalk. <laughs> you don't even have to experience michigan not a problem but mm-hmm. yeah. oh yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at the schedule. I always like to go out and see, you know, the, the way that I've been able to develop products is really going out into these uh, farming communities, understanding the needs of the producers and coming back and developing equipment. And so you'll probably see me. I, I have a hard time sitting here. Okay, excellent. All right. Love well, that. Get get that into the happies. Then you maybe, who knows, maybe you can go away at the cool award in the end too. So, yeah. All right, Dave, Mike, anything as we wrap up the show? No. All right. Well, here we go. Well, I do want to say uh, thank you to our sponsors. We don't have our up on our screen right now, but we'll we'll put them on the uh, post production. So Veritas Labs, uh, Neogen, U.S. Hemp Brokerage, U.S. Hemp Wholesale, I Hemp Manufacturing, The Hemper, um, Lakeland Hemp. I think I've got. U.S. Hemp Brokerage. Thank you again for everyone that reaches out and sponsors and supports. uh, our efforts we do appreciate, appreciate it and it makes a difference so Very thank you much we do absolutely yep um so um, protein yeah. pancakes protein protein pancakes that's for sure yeah i did want to mention a couple of things um so neogen has come out with that test for uh, testing your plants for the thc um, mm-hmm. we're kind of past that point right now but a uh, great machine they've come up with there so i'm sure that'll be in the hempies matter of fact i know that they enter that into the uh, hemp innovation challenge as well I talked to Nate about that. So uh, great product we got there as well. And also if anybody uh, is doing, uh, this is a kind of food safety related, but if you are um, doing food safety uh, and you need to have a handbook and the SOPs, the interoperating procedures, everything needs to be done. Uh, National Farmers Union got a grant so we can help people do that for free. Um, so if you need some help on there, reach out and we'll be able to help develop that handbook and that whole whole system you need for food safety. So all right. With that, uh, we are going to be talking about uh, the pumpkin protein pancakes. Now, they say 45 minutes in here, but I don't say anything in here. It takes 45 minutes, especially when you're making them for breakfast. You're not going to wait 45 minutes for breakfast. You're going to do this. So um, so the ingredients are pretty simple. Um, this is uh, so the protein pumpkin pancakes. Protein pumpkin pancakes, a fall favorite, serving six. Uh, ready in 45 minutes. Calories is 179 per servings. Uh, it's good for breakfast introduction. And if you like pancakes throughout the day, you can eat them throughout the day. So, uh, 
<laughs> so it's real simple. It's a half a cup of canned pureed pumpkin, two eggs, um, a quarter cup of the coconut palm sugar, a quarter tablespoon of the ground allspice, one tablespoon of ground cinnamon, a quarter tablespoon of ground ginger, half a cup of blanched flour, or almond flour, baking soda, sea salt, coconut oil, and maple syrup. Um, now, I always like to add in a little bit of hemp hearts no matter what I do. So, you know, putting a little hemp hearts in there isn't going to hurt, that's for sure. So there's the recipe step by step. Uh, you put all the pumpkin mix together and grind it all up and let it sit for about 15 minutes. I think that's the longest part of the whole thing. And then uh, the rest of it's all like how you make pancakes. So there you go. And I would definitely throw in a little uh, quarter cup or so of those uh, hemp hearts. It'll really give it a great flavor for that. Uh, today's recipe, we want to give credit where credit's due. Uh, this is from, I thought I had it on there. Dave, does it say on there where this is from? Uh, yeah, let me pull, go back to that. It is mm -hmm. from a Real Healthy Recipes. There you go. Okay. The recipes go. Uh, next week, I believe we have Icon Processors is going to be our guest next week. So, Michigan company here that's helping uh, farmers uh, turn their CBD products into oil and distillate. And uh, so we'll have on them next week to talk a little bit about that segment of society and how that's going for everybody. So, All right, uh, Andrew uh, and Karen, one more time. How can people find you and get a hold of you if they have questions and want to talk to you? Yeah, visit us uh, on our website, go to bishenterprise.com or www.hempharvestworks.com. Uh, our phone number is listed. Uh, there's a contact us button. We'll get an email. Um, that's the easiest way to get a hold of us. Or you can find me and you can search for my name on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll come up there uh, as well. Does Karen answer the phone when they call or, or what? Usually, actually. I'm usually the one who is, and I look at the sales inbox. So uh, if you guys can use that contact information, you can get a hold of me too pretty easily. So. All right. All right. Well, thanks so much for playing. Thanks, guys. You guys. Thank you. Andrew, if you want to stay on for a couple of minutes, I'll uh, call, be Y'all to call him, Blaine. You're, you're not, you're not oh, going to want to disconnect on your website. So. Ah. Okay. All right. right, well, I'm disconnecting all next week. Thank you for listening to the IHEMP Michigan podcast. Have a question, comment, or suggestion? Email Dave at IHEMPMichigan.com.